Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Carmel Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Abbas Molani, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Iran in Turmoil, Implications for U.S. Policy and Regional Politics. It was recorded on May 17, 2019. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that generous uh, introduction. Uh, I think one thing uh, he left out, which is very important, is that according to the Iranian regime, uh, I and uh, Mike McFaul and Larry Diamond, who co-direct the Iran Democracy Project, have been behind every demonstration in Iran in the last four or five years, and that uh, I am an agent of the CIA and funneled their money to the opposition. This actually they wrote in an indictment. Uh, but uh, uh, schizophrenic as their assessment is, Hoover is truly a remarkable place for understanding not just Iran and the Middle East, but the world. Uh, part of what I'm going to be talking about uh, is uh, a talk I gave uh, three weeks ago uh, at a, a meeting that George Schultz has been convening, a series of meetings at uh, Hoover. Uh, he believes that the world is at a very dangerous moment, and a dangerous hinge, he calls it, and that it is topsy-turvy, that there are changes that nobody really has thought about seriously. And for the last year, he's been bringing uh, experts to Hoover uh, who sit for a whole day, and George Schultz sits with them the whole day, although he's 97, he's remarkable. Uh, and they talk about these problems, these different aspects of these problems. And if you go to Hoover's uh, website uh, under governance in the time of change, all the past nine collection of essays, and they're really written by some of the top, world's top experts in these different fields, from uh, Asia to Africa to Latin America and to the Middle East. Uh, the panel on the Middle East, he asked me to moderate. He also asked me to give a paper. Uh, the paper I'm going to uh, uh, present to you here is a shorter version of that. Or better yet, the paper I was going to present to you because a lot has changed since we decided that for the title of this talk. So before talking about the turmoil in Iran, I need to talk about the turmoil in the United States and in the region and in the very possible uh, emergence of a war between Iran and the United States. Again, if we were having this conversation last week, uh, the level of my concern about the flare-up, about the possibility of a full-fledged military confrontation would have been much more. Today, I am much less uh, anxious because I think it is now very clear that the president doesn't want a war and the president thinks he has been pushed into a little corner that might get him and the U.S. into a war and he's trying to walk it back. And clearly, Iran doesn't want the war for reasons that I will explain. So let me briefly tell you how and why we got to this moment uh, and then describe why Iran is in the position in the turmoil that it is in. And then I'll end by uh, making some comments about uh, uh, what I think the US uh, should do. Uh, just yesterday, again, uh, I wrote an op-ed piece for The Hill 
describing this current situation and describing the dangers and describing how a war will really not be beneficial to anybody, not the United States, not uh, Israel, not Saudi Arabia, and not Iran. All of this tension began essentially when the United States, uh, the president, decided to withdraw from the nuclear deal, which he thought was a very bad deal. Uh, then uh, he continued the process of pressuring Iran by, just a few weeks ago, taking the very unusual step of declaring the IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, a foreign terrorist organization. Uh, the IRGC is now the most important part of the Iranian military. <clears throat> it has an international force called the Quds Brigade. Quds literally means Jerusalem. It is the Arabic name for Jerusalem. And they think that it is called the Quds Brigade because their ultimate goal is to go to Quds and liberate it, as they call it. Uh, the Quds Brigade is the most important outside uh, arm of the Iranian uh, regime. It is the one that has been training the Hezbollah in Lebanon. It is the one that has been training Shiite radicals in Iraq. It is the one that has been training the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, it is the one that is helping the Sh Shiites of Afghanistan fight in Syria on behalf of the murderous uh, Syrian regime. So it's a very important arm of the Iranian IRGC. Before making this announcement, the Quds Brigade was declared a foreign terrorist organization, but that was a small part of the uh, IRGC. Now the entire IRGC was declared a foreign terrorist organization. That's a force of about 120 to 150,000 regulars and almost a million irregulars. And it's also a force that controls virtually 40 at least percent of the entire Iranian economy. So anyone in any capacity dealing with 40% of the Iranian economy is now in the eyes of the United States helping uh, a foreign terrorist organization. The Iran retaliated, the Iranian regime retaliated by declaring CENTCOM one of the major US forces, uh, a terrorist organization. And then they double down on this foolishness and say any US force in the Middle East is a foreign terrorist organization. So now you have several thousand Iranian IRGC forces and US forces shoulder to shoulder, neighbor to neighbor in Iraq and Syria. They have declared each other foreign terrorists, which means it's open fire if they see. Fortunately, nobody has fired on the other one yet, but it increased the level of attention. The United States then took the next step and said, we are not going to allow Iran to sell a single barrel of oil. Oil is a major uh, uh, source of Iran's foreign currency. The United States said, we are not going to give anybody an exemption. They had been giving some countries an exemption after the sanctions, saying these countries can buy Iranian oil. Now they said, we're going to make it zero. And some Iranian officials said, if you're not going to sell oil, we're not going to let anybody else sell oil in the Persian Gulf. That means Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, 
And if you look at the map of uh, the Persian Gulf, there's a little waterway out of the Persian Gulf into the Indian Ocean. It's called the Strait of Hormuz. You shut down the Strait of Hormuz, the foreign flow of oil from the Persian Gulf is going to be very problematic. And then you're going to be looking at a hike in the price of oil. Saudi Arabia is not going to be able to fill the market to make sure that that hike doesn't happen. After the US sanctioned Iran, Saudi Arabia said to the markets, don't worry, whatever oil you don't get from Iran will increase production. And they did maintain the price of oil. The price of oil did not go up. But if there is war, I can guarantee you the price of oil will go up and will go up to the south of 100, which incidentally helps Russia a great deal. <clears throat> then the US also increased the pressure and said, we're not only not going to allow you to export oil, we're not going to allow you to export metals either, which is the second most important source of income for the Iranian regime. So they are basically saying, you're not going to be able to export anything that gives you any foreign currency, which is absolutely essential for the Iranian regime for reasons that I will try to explain. It's a virtually bankrupt economy. Not a virtually bankrupt, it's a bankrupt economy that is. <clears throat> uh, then uh, uh, Iran, a few weeks ago, uh, this is something that has been almost uh, seen no coverage in the Western media, but I think it's a very important event. Iran brought three of its most important proxies. These are groups that Iran has armed trained and paid for who fight these regional wars on behalf of the Iranian regime. That includes the Hezbollah, that includes a group called Hashd al-Sha'bi, which is the most radical group in, of Shiites in Iraq, and it also cons uh, uh, is consisting of a group called Fatimiyun, which are Shiites from Afghanistan who were in asylum in Iran Iran paid them money, trained them a little bit, and sent them to fight in Syria on behalf of the Iranian and the Syrian regime. And their numbers is in thousands. Last year, they had 2,000 killed. So figure how many were there to have 2,000 killed. The regime brought some of these forces under their own flag, armed, into Iran, and paraded them in the southern region of Iran, which is on the Persian Gulf. Ostensibly, they brought them to help Iranian flood victims. But if you knew anything about Iranian politics, you knew they were brought to serve notice on two groups. The Iranian people, that is, if you rise up against the regime, we are going to use these mercenaries to put you down. They literally made this threat. Second, they were serving notice on Saudi Arabia and the United States, that if you attack us, we have these proxies here that we can use against you. Then the United States got some intelligence. And here is where the issue becomes a little murky. The United States gets some images, some satellite images of some of these boats, some of the IRGC boats being uh, uh, armed with missiles. And they also get a report of a meeting in Baghdad where the commander of the Ghost Brigade that I told you about met with the Shiite radicals 
and said, get ready, we might be heading towards war. That intelligence was seen by the US as the possibility for a major new <clears throat> increase in confrontation. At this time, the US decided to send parts of its uh, seventh fleet towards the Persian Gulf. Uh, a couple of uh, aircraft carriers were sent. And here is where <clears throat> the issue becomes really complicated. Uh, instead of the Defense Department issuing a statement saying that there is this redeployment, the White House, and more specifically, John Bolton, issued a very terse statement saying, we have sent these ships towards the Persian Gulf, and if Iran makes one wrong move, we're going to relentlessly fight this war, which was a very brazen, very tough message. Uh, by many, many reports, some from people at Stanford, from Hoover, uh, some from the media, the president was not very happy with Bolton pushing him into a corner. After that, he's been trying to <clears throat> walk it back. So uh, uh, my sense is that uh, uh, now that you have this force in the Persian Gulf, very near uh, Iranian forces, the possibility of a mistake, the possibility of someone creating uh, incident uh, is not uh, insignificant. In fact, there was an incident a couple of days ago. Uh, the US initially thought that Iran might be behind it. But again, the United States seems to have walked back and does not now claim that Iran has been behind the, the, these attacks on oil tankers. So the situation, I think, is extremely tense. But for reasons that I will try to explain, I don't think, fortunately, I don't think we are in for a confrontation, military war, full-fledged war between Iran and the uh, United States. I don't think it is likely to happen, first, because I don't think President Trump wants it. Very much an essential theme of his foreign policy has been that these wars in the Middle East have been a waste of money. They have been a waste of US blood. There have been one, $3 trillion spent in Europe and in Middle East. They could have been spent in the US and really made America great. Uh, so he doesn't want another war. And every expert in the military domain and the intelligence will tell you that a battle with Iran, a full war with Iran, is going to be much, much, much costlier in human, financial, military aspects than the war with Iraq, the war with uh, Afghanistan. Iran is a much larger country. It has 85 million. It has a much more trained uh, military. And it fights a different kind of war. Iran fights the Iranian regime, has been very good in learning how to fight an asymmetric war. The Iranian territory is twice the size of these countries put together. It is a very different nature. It has mountainous regions that don't lend themselves to the kind of tank attacks that you saw in Iraq. So I hope they, it, that it doesn't happen. The Congress doesn't seem to like, uh, want it. Clearly, a majority of the House doesn't want it. I think maybe a majority of the Senate also doesn't want a full war with Iran. And I think none of the allies want it. 
uh, with the exception of maybe Saudi Arabia, Israel, and United Arab Emirates. They have been trying to get the US into a battle with Iran because they see Iran as a major threat. They know they can't take out Iran alone. They need the United States to be fighting that war for them. And, but I think there is very little uh, desire on behalf of the United States military, the United States intelligence, the United States the bureaucracy and the State Department. And my sense is that even uh, Secretary Pompeo doesn't share Bolton's view that the only way to solve the Iran problem is a military confrontation. So the US uh, is, I think, uh, not keenly interested in getting into a war with Iran. Uh, but an accident can happen. A false flag can happen. And then we can't control it. I hope that they will control it. I also think Iran doesn't want the war. Uh, there are people in Iran who want the war, clearly. There are a minority in Iran who see this as a kind of a way out of their uh, truly serious crisis. And I'll be shortly describing that crisis, which is the initial title of my talk, The Turmoil in Iran. Uh, and over the last few days, both the commander of the IRGC, uh, that we mentioned, who is incidentally increasing uh, in uh, his public persona, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if before the end of the year, for example, the Revolutionary Guards actually virtually take over the reins of power in Iran. That's how desperate the situation is and how that possible military takeover is. And in that spirit, they have been clearly increasing the profile of the commander of the IRGC Hots Brigade as this kind of a liberating general, this kind of a mystic, uh, powerful military man who is pious, who is not corrupt, which is very rare in Iranian regime today. Iranian regime is easily, according to almost every international survey I have seen, one of the most corrupt in the world uh, in terms of how much payoff there is, in terms of how uh, the disparity between the very rich and the poor. Uh, but uh, both of them and Khamenei, Khamenei is Iran's supreme leader. He's the cleric who has the most uh, power by constitution and by the last uh, 30 years uh, position of leadership, uh, who have said repeatedly, we don't want war and we don't think war is going to happen. So they're trying to bring down the rhetoric. So there are forces on both sides who are trying to temper down the rhetoric. And there are forces on both sides who see this possibility as a bonanza for them. One of the main reasons that Iran doesn't want war uh, is that it can't afford it. Right now, the Iranian regime, I think, is facing uh, one of the most serious economic crises that it has felt, faced in the last 40 years. Uh, and I'll try to describe why that is and how that is. It, it, many people would say uh, that the reason the economic situation is so dire is because US sanctions. US sanctions have exacerbated an already falling, failing economy. They didn't create this crisis. 
But they, I think, realized, I think the US knows at least as much about the US intelligence, at least as much about the Iranian economy as I do, and they see that it is a failing economy. And thus, they, they realize that if you tighten the screw, it is going to hurt a lot more than it would if the Iranian situation wasn't as bad as it is. And it is bad essentially because they have had 40 years of crony, corrupt, incompetent, status capitalism. They have virtually destroyed the Iranian private sector. They have expropriated the most successful Iranian entrepreneurs. Many of them have homes in your neighborhoods. I'm sure some of you might know an Iranian in your neighborhood who has bought a house 40 years ago. These were some of the most successful entrepreneurs in Iran. Almost all of them were expropriated. And every, virtually every company that they owned which was the most vibrant Iranian, uh, the vibrant economy in the Middle East outside Israel at the time. If you look at Iran in 1977, there is no Muslim economy in the Middle East that is more vibrant. Iran economy in 1977 is comparable by every measure to Taiwan, to South Korea, far ahead of Turkey. Look at where those economies are, and look at where Iranian economy is. That has been the cost of this crony, corrupt, statist uh, economy. So that has been a crisis 40 years in the making. But now, with the sanctions, every uh, pressure that existed has now been uh, doubled or tripled or exacerbated. Let me give you some of the aspects of this. Again, if you uh, will, uh, we can make that uh, series of articles available to you if you just uh, write to us. Uh, there I have described it at great length. You see all the data. I'm not going to go through numbers. If you need the numbers, they're all there. Uh, and the studies that we have done in the Iranian Studies Program, for example, uh, uh, detail every facet of what I'm about to tell you with numbers. Uh, and you're more than welcome to go there if you're uh, a numbers ladies or a numbers guys. Uh, <clears throat> you all, I think, understand as successful entrepreneurs uh, that the financial system is the bloodline of an economy. The Iranian financial system is virtually on the verge of collapse. And the only reason it hasn't collapsed is because the state keeps it afloat. The Iranian banks are essentially a Ponzi scheme, all of them. They give interest of 25 to 35%. Interest, incidentally, is forbidden in Islam. This is supposed to be an Islamic economy. So they don't call it interest. They call it shared risk. But they give you 25% of shared risk every year, and or 35. Uh, you would ask yourself, why isn't there a, a sucking sound of money going to Iran, as Ross Perot would say, if you give 35% interest on the uh, investment? Guaranteed bank interest. The reason is that currently the inflation rate is 50%. The real inflation rate is probably more. IMF very cautiously predicts that the inflation rate in the coming year will be 50%. Everyone I talk to, and I spend a little too much time talking to people inside Iran every day, 
tell me that the actual inflation rate is higher. I can give you some numbers that are absolutely staggering. The Iranian banks, almost all, are over leveraged. They have made bad loans. They have made bad loans to the clergy. They have made bad loans to the IRGC. And they're not going to collect. Absolutely no way for them to collect. They're doing shenanigans in bookkeeping where they're holding these bad loans as assets and keeping the company, the bank, afloat. If that's not enough, Iran has 7,000 savings and loans association equivalent. These began as a small companies that would give a sort of microcredit. Then they changed the laws, allowed them to work essentially as bank, and almost all of them are on the verge of collapse because they have uh, taken the money, they have invested in these bad loans, they have promised uh, 25, 30% interest, and as a Ponzi scheme, when money stops to come in, the Ponzi fails. So the financial system is in serious, serious jeopardy. And that's the foundation. The other source of their income was oil and metals. Now they're virtually incapable of exporting it. But even if they were capable of exporting it, they have done such a bad job of managing the Iranian oil industry that if they want to get Iran's oil industry back to the level it was in 1975, they need an infusion of 200 to 300 billion dollars in foreign investment. Last year, for the, the year before, not last year, the last year I think is less than, uh, I think it's 700 million. Two years ago, before the sanctions were in full force, they got less than three billion. They needed 200 billion just for oil. And to get it to 1975 level, where the population of Iran was 35 million. Iran's population is now 85 million. The Iranian currency has been in a free fall. When I uh, went to Iran in 1975, if you had $1, you would get seven Persian tuman. If you have $1 now, you get 15,000 tuman. Or better yet, that was this morning. <laughs> it might be more now. I really literally mean this. I mean, prices are changing by the minute because there are, everything is pegged to the dollar. And the price of the dollar keeps increasing because the demand for dollar keeps increasing. People are taking money from the banks, buying dollars, and hiding it under the pillow. That's why it has become very difficult to put your, pull your money out of the bank. But there's so much they can do. After a while, uh, that is not going to uh, work. Iran not only has double-digit inflation, 50% now, it also has double-digit unemployment and has had double-digit unemployment virtually for every year in the last 40 years. I don't know of any other economy that has had for 40 years double-digit unemployment and double-digit inflation. 60% of Iran's graduates from college today are women. 
That's a remarkable fact. The regime has done everything it can to stop women from going to school. But Iranian women have said, heck with you, we are going to go to school. And we're going to go to graduate school. But unemployment for college women graduates is above 65%. And this 65% is an absolutely concocted number. The real number is higher. And the reason the real number is higher is that if you know anything about unemployment figures anywhere in the world, including the United States, Unemployment figure, official unemployment figure, is the percentage of people unemployed who are looking for work. If you have given up looking for work, you are not part of the unemployed army. A majority of Iranian women have been forced to forget about searching for work because it's absolute despair. Or their husbands don't want them to work. Or they realize that they get 25 cents, 25 cents for a dollar for equal work. The general unemployment rate, depending on who you ask, is at least around 20% right now. So you have an economy that is double unemployment, double digit inflation, and the inflation I think is going to be increasing. Unless they find some very quick solution, Iran might be going the way of Venezuela in terms of hyperinflation. Because from 50% to 100%, and from 100% to infinity is a short. Uh, all you need is for people to begin withdrawing their money from the bank. You have one run on a bank, and you have another uh, Venezuela. Uh, and this has uh, led to, uh, how much time do I have? Five minutes? Right. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the other two problems that Iran faces, again, is, is population. Iran used to be a very youthful population. But now it is beginning to become an aging population. And unless they do something very drastic, and they're not going to because Iranian women are simply not having too many babies. The regime wants the families to be seven children, seven. Iranian women are actually having less than two children. So the Iranian population is barely at the replacement level and is aging every day. And if they don't find a solution within the next 10 years, a great bulk of even if they could sell oil will have to be uh, spent on retirement funds. And retirement funds is another part of the Iranian economy that is on the verge of collapse. They have plundered these uh, funds. They have plundered them. IRGC has plundered and almost every one of them, according to the Iranian government. The equivalent of the social security, the Iran social security, that has been plundered. Ahmadinejad put an absolute criminal an interrogator with absolutely no knowledge or experience in economic management. They put him in charge of the biggest retirement fund in the country. And they pl absolutely plundered it. This is the same guy who killed the Canadian journalist, banged her head. 
And to think that he would be put in charge of the Iranian equivalent of the social security is a symbol of the kind of uh, management. So it is an economy that is truly in a crisis. Workers have been on the rise. Uh, the number of strikes in Iran has increased in the last year. I, I don't want to get into it. And another aspect of Iranian society, let me at least give you one happy good news. Uh, the Iranian women are fighting this regime in a most brilliant, defiant, dedicated, relentless manner. They are fighting for economic uh, equality. They're far from getting it. They're fighting for the right to be in public. They're fighting for the right to decide how they want to dress, how many children they want to have, whether they should stay with the man that they marry. Uh, Iranian law doesn't allow women to file for divorce. Iranian women actually, about 50% currently, walk away when they find out the guy is not going to do his uh, share of uh, family responsibility. So you have a regime that is in crisis. And you have a population that is disgruntled. And you have a leadership that is aged and reactionary. It is a septuagenarian male leadership. You ask, you see any image of Iranian leadership you, the top leadership, almost never is there a single woman in there. You have 60% of the country's graduates being women, and there isn't a single woman in the top economic political leadership of the country. There was one woman in a top corporation, they just fired her two uh, weeks ago. And even that token well, top leader is no longer there. So it is not an economy uh, that is doing well. Under these circumstances, in my view, the only prudent policy that the United States can have is not a war. A war helps those who have brought the country to the verge of collapse. The prudent policy, and I can uh, describe this in the question and answer if you want, is very, in my view, similar to what the United States did with the Soviet Union. Containment. Confront them when they're aggressive. Contain them from their expansionism. Make the people in that country, in that empire, know that the United States is with them, that the United States is willing to help them. Actually do help them when you can. Help them discreetly when you can. But a military confrontation will be extremely costly to the United States, destabilizing in the region, and a lifeline to the bums who got Iran to where Iran is today. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.